We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, and wherever you find your podcasts. How well did you sleep last night? If you had a disturbed night, you're not alone. More than one third of adults suffer from insomnia or some other kind of sleep disorder. From a personal perspective, I've had bouts of poor sleep, especially as I've grown older. When one of my previous witnesses, Philip Cargom, came up with a programme that combined sleep science with spirituality, I had to have him back and find out more. Philip is a psychotherapist trained in sophrology, a relaxation method to increase mind-body connection, and psychosynthesis psychotherapy. He's also a former chosen chief of the Order of Bards, Ovates and Druids. He's put his six-step programme for better sleep into a book called The Gift of the Night. So, nice to see you again, Philip. What is your relationship with sleep? Thank you, Andrew. Yes, it's, it's lovely to be back. I never had any trouble sleeping. And then my wife, when she reached the menopause, developed insomnia, which is a common symptom of the menopause. And I apparently wasn't sympathetic enough. I thought I was being sympathetic, but she told me afterwards that I wasn't during that period. But what then happened was that I experienced a bout of insomnia. And it was very salutary because I realized I don't think I'd appreciated, perhaps I hadn't been sympathetic enough or empathetic enough because I didn't appreciate how unpleasant insomnia can be. And so I was determined to tackle it. And I got to work and started, you know, I trained in CBTI and in other approaches to dealing with sleep and developed a, a, a method for dealing with it. So give us an insight into what insomnia is actually like. Okay, well, there are, there are basically two kinds of insomnia. What's called sleep onset insomnia, which is where you, you get into bed and you just can't drop off. You find it really hard to go to sleep and it can take a very long time and can become extremely uncomfortable as you try. And that's sleep onset insomnia. Sleep maintenance insomnia is where you get off to sleep okay, but you wake up in the middle of the night and then can't get back to sleep and maybe toss and turn in bed for a couple of hours before going back to sleep. And if you're unfortunate to have both, then it's called mixed insomnia. So you find it hard to get to sleep. And then when you do, you then wake up again in the middle of the night and can't get back to sleep. So those are the, those are the types. So which one did you have? I had a bit of both, actually. I had a bit of both. And I became particularly interested in it, I think, and I've become very intrigued by it because as a psychologist, you know that so many mental health issues are quite intractable and are difficult to deal with. And yet sleep, really CBT has a 70% success rate in curing insomnia. And the whole field of insomnia and sleep science really isn't desperately contested. In other words, you can study it fairly quickly, get a good handle on it, and start to make a difference with clients in a way that doesn't apply to other problems like depression and so on, where there are lots of competing theories. And you could spend your whole professional life visiting conferences and you know reading hundreds of books about it and so on. So it's a fairly small area to, to, to get a grip on. And you really can make a big difference to clients really fast. And so what helped you? What helped me was an insight really into, which is the title of my book. My book is The Gift of the Night. And what starts to happen with insomnia is, is the night is no longer your friend. Because you can't get to sleep, you sort of battle. It's very easy to get into sort of battle mode where you, the more you try, the harder it seems to be. Because what happens is you start to worry about the fact that you're not going to sleep because you know that sleep is essential for good physical and mental health. 
So you start to worry. And then you remember that worrying isn't good for you. So you start to <laughs> worrying about the fact that you're worrying. So you sort of double worry. And Viktor Frankl, the famous psychiatrist, said, sleep is like a white dove that settles on your hand. As soon as you pay attention to it, it flies away. Mm. So you get into this awful, vicious cycle of, of overly attending to it. And a key turnaround for me was when I realized that I spent a lot of time needing more me, thinking I ought to go on a retreat, that my life is so busy, I need more me time, where just nothing to distract me. And I realized actually every night, I'm getting about eight hours of a, a mini retreat, me time, and that I could actually do those things that I complained to myself that I wasn't doing, which is learning about different kinds of meditation, listening to music. I never have time during the day to listen to music. So sort of the idea of getting to know certain composers or certain styles of music, absolutely impossible during the day. But at night, so I, so I made playlists of people like um, Michael Tippett, for instance, and John Taverner, whose music that I wanted to get to know. And I, and I listened to lots of music. So that was the first sort of reframe that I had. That insomnia was some kind of gift. Is that well, what there, there was a strange gift in, well, the gift was really not in the insomnia, but in my attitude towards it and what I thought about it, which is so interesting because you would think that what we think about sleep wouldn't really have any difference to our, make any difference to how we slept, but it does make an enormous difference. And what they've discovered is that even learning about sleep and how it works can improve your sleep. And they're not ex exactly sure why, but they think it's because it gives you some sense of agency over it. You're not helpless. It's a fascinating subject in itself. And as you learn about sleep and how, and, and how it sleep problems can be addressed you, and, and start to apply them, it really does start to improve. I really like the title of your book, The Gift of the Night, because one, I've been working on with, on this book with a client and the most mm. useful thing so far for her has been just the title, the idea that the night might be a gift. So um, thank you for that. That's good to hear. Yes, yes, people do say that. that so the importance of, of reframing and of how you think about sleep, it's, 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 it's a sort of good starting point. It's sort of step one in, in the six-step program, essentially, how you think about sleep. So the reframe is sleep to rest, for example, and from night from enemy to friend. Yes, befriending the night, yes. And that you change the question, why am I not sleeping, to what should I do with my consciousness as I lie in bed? Give us some help answering that question. Yes. Okay. So what tends to happen is we tend to get fixated on trying to get to this altered state of consciousness, which in this case is sleep. So the question really isn't, why aren't I sleeping? But if you change it to what state of consciousness, what consciousness am I going to be in? That opens it up and it broadens the frame so that that level of consciousness doesn't have to be sleep. It can be deep relaxation. It can be meditative states. A big insight for me came up for about three years ago. I was invited to join the team working with a group of people who had taken psilocybin at Imperial College for treatment-resistant depression. And, you know, psilocybin is being seen now to have really great potential in terms of dealing with depression. And I was in the team that did support work after for the year after meeting together with the clients. And, and, then I, and then I was recruited into the, the retreat team where we would go to Holland and people would take psilocybin together in a setting there. And what I realized was that the model used in psychedelic therapy could be helpful in terms of looking at sleep. And that model is simply that you're trying to help people move from an everyday state of consciousness, normal waking consciousness, to a very unusual state in the psychedelic state, and then back again safely. And exactly the same process is going on with sleep. You're moving from an ordinary state of waking to a very unusual state where you're having dreams and strange experiences and so on, and then you come back down again. So I found that that was a much simpler and clearer way of talking about, about the process of sleep. And that the model used in, in uh, psychedelic therapy, which was developed you know, in the 1960s by those two infamous psychologists, you know, um, Timothy Leary and 
uh, Ramdas. The two most dangerous men in America. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's right, that's right. And you know, which is set setting and medicine. It's like so, and that set is is your mindset, the the way you approach something with your mind, and your heart set, if you like, your emotion, your feelings about sleep, your thoughts and feelings about sleep, and then the setting, the bedroom, all the stuff around how your body is is set up with you know, and then the medicine is you know how are you going to get off to sleep. And I found that was a much clearer way of talking about the process and working with therapy than the terminology that CBT uses, which is sleep hygiene, which I find is rather offensive because it suggests that until your therapist tells you about sleep hygiene, somehow you've, your habits have been somewhat unhygienic and grubby. I'm going to have dirty sleep tonight. It certainly has a certain ring to it, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Yes, I was. I, I was going to call my book "Dirty Sleep," but 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 my wife said that's probably not a good name for a book. Um, <laughs> that you could have probably sold a lot of copies, but people have been very disappointed when they read <laughs> yes, it. So let's start with set and setting. Then, if we're going to improve our sleep, how should we change our set and our setting? Okay. Well, the first tip, as I said, is this: is these re, certain sort of ways of reframing things, befriending, befriending the night, treating it as your special retreat time, treating it really as an adventure. You're saying every night for about eight hours, you know, I've got this time that I can treat myself with. I can, I can, if I'm not sleeping, I can listen to music, I can listen to poetry, I can learn a language, I can, you know, I can relax. And there's learning about sleep itself, which includes telling your sleep story. Now, that in, that is simply either talking to a friend or a therapist or just to yourself, just articulating the story of your sleep. And by that, I mean, you know, uh, how has your sleep been through your life? How did you sleep when you were younger? What sort of time do you like to go to bed? How often do you remember your dreams? Just very general. The purpose of this is exactly the same purpose that a therapist or counsellor will use in getting a client to tell the story of their life, so the power of the narrative. There's no need to analyse it or go into any try, trying to understand what's going on. You just tell the story. That has a value in itself. And I'm assuming that there's no right or wrong time to go to bed or anything else like that. You just tell the story, no judgement. Just tell the story, no judgement. When it comes to then... Then I give some resources where you de you just determine what your chronotype is. Your chronotype is, in, in sort of everyday language, it's, you know, are you a lark or an owl? You know, and in fact, there are four, but they're types. And what's interesting about that is that if you don't know your chronotype, and you almost certainly do because you've learned over the years that you like to stay up late or that you like to go to bed early, you know, simple as that, really. But there are a couple of interesting details in this. One is that what seems to happen is that couples, you tend to pair up with somebody who's a different chronotype to you, which makes sense from an evolutionary perspective that a lark and an owl should get together. From So for childcare, you're covering more time of wake, waking time. And if the wolves are about to get you, at least one of you is going to be conscious at the time. Well, exactly. So it makes a lot of sense. But of course, in our, our world, we, we like to go to bed at the same time as our partner. And so Often what you'll find in a couple is that one of the partners will compromise and say, well, really, I want to go to bed at midnight every night, but you like to go to bed at 10 o'clock. I'll go to bed with you. Cause it's, that's, yeah. So that's one thing to sort out, as it were, that can make a difference. So you know your, your bedtime. The reason, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this subject, really, is because working as a therapist, you can make a huge impact very fast. I'll give you a, a, an example, one case. A client who came to me whose symptoms were depression. He said, in the mornings, I find it impossible to get out of bed. It's really hard. I feel miserable and depressed. And then when I finally do get myself out of bed, I drag myself through the day and so on. I got his history from him, talked to him, and it turned out that he was essentially an owl who was compromising to go to bed at the same time as his lark partner. So he used to go to bed at midnight or one in the morning. He was in the music industry and would wake up at nine, 10 in the morning. Fine. No problems. No symptoms of depression at all. Once he started changing and going to bed early, it simply wasn't working for him. He would 
suffer from insomnia and he would not be able to wake up and so on and so on so, and would have these problems. So I suggested, luckily, he was in a kind of work where he could change his, he, he was freelance, so it doesn't matter. I invited him to spend a fortnight just going to bed at midnight or one in the morning and his symptoms disappeared. So there's this interesting relationship between depression and sleep difficulties. It's called, it's bi-directional. In other words, insomnia can trigger depression in some people, or it can exacerbate mild depression and make it more severe. But likewise, depression can cause insomnia. So the causality is going both ways. And sometimes it's quite hard to untangle them. But if a client, if a client's depression has been triggered by insomnia, if you can cure the insomnia, you can also cure the depression. And one of the things I found very interesting was the idea of the second sleep. We expect to go to bed and then wake up the next morning, whereas our ancestors, because we're living all of us in a weird world now with electricity where the day is sort of as we wish, they had an entirely different sleep pattern. So tell me about that. Yes, that's fascinating, because if you suffer from what's called sleep maintenance insomnia, where you can't maintain a full night's sleep, the first thing I say to people is, well, forget the label that you've got insomnia. You may actually be more in tune with thousands of years of evolution of humanity than your friends who sleep all night through, because the research shows that if you put people in caves, for instance, give them no cues as to the passing of time, they will tend to sleep in two blocks of about four hours with a couple of hours in between. And if you have sleep maintenance insomnia, what is almost certainly happening is that you're a dual phase sleeper, biphasic sleeper. And there's nothing wrong with you at all. And it's just a question of arranging your life so that you can fit that in. And then in the couple of hours you're awake, you can, you can make a choice. You can decide to get up and do housework. You can lie in bed and learn a language. You can listen to music. And then it's helpful to know some tips for dropping back into sleep. So when you want to drop back down again, you can sort of facilitate that process. I'm told this is the time that this sort of between the first sleep and the second sleep is when all the mystics had their insights. And this is a time when you might feel closer to some greater power. Well, it, it's a very interesting time. And because you're, you're sort of free, if you think about it, what you see, what's happening in sleep, you know, you've got these three phases of light sleep, deep sleep, and then REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, where most of your dreaming takes place. That happens every 90 minutes, that cycle. So the first one and a half hours of sleep is, say, say you go to bed at 10, at 11.30, you've done one cycle. And then you've done a, if you do a second cycle, that'll be uh, to 12 to 1 in the morning, and then so on, and 2.30 and so on. So at any of those, you might wake up. What's been happening in that cycle is your memories have been consolidated. There's this process we know, laying down memories. Your REM sleep, your dream sleep, has been helping you to resolve emotional conflicts and difficulties and tensions and so on. And during the phase of deep sleep, the gaps between the neurons in your brain have widened to enable cerebrospinal fluid to flush through your brain to help remove beta amyloid plaque that is a sort of fatty deposit that gets laid down on the axons and the, the neurons in the nervous system, which contribute to Alzheimer's. But in deep sleep, this is flushed out. So, so a whole lot of workers, so if you can imagine waking up at 1.30 in the morning, 2.30 in the morning, memories have been laid down, cells have been regenerated, the plaque has been flushed through your brain, conflicts have been resolved in, in, in dream sleep and so on, and you're rested, so you're in a rather interesting place in those few hours in which new ideas, creativity, maybe connection with the divine, all those sorts of things could well be going on. Certainly that whole idea of the second sleep mm. and just not worrying, getting up, doing a bit of reading, and then half an hour later I feel tired and I go back to sleep, I found that that was a sort of a revolution for me. And I was also very interested in an idea that I had never heard of before that I learned from you, and that's sleep state misperception. 
Mm. Isn't that fascinating? Well, they discovered this is a term that they invented when they discovered that some people, when they're showing evidence of being deeply asleep, they're in a sleep lab, so they're all wired up. So all the indicators show this person is deeply asleep. If they are woken up at that point, they say that they are wide awake. So that raises a fascinating question. Is this person deluded? Did they dream they were, were they dreaming they were awake? Or were they actually in a state of awareness while their body was asleep? So it raises interesting questions about the nature of consciousness. And it brings us to the topic of lucid dreaming, where, again, your body is asleep. It's in, in a REM state. It's fast asleep. And yet you wake up while you're dreaming, realize you're dreaming, and choose to carry on within the dream, knowing that you can explore this new territory. You know, you can choose to fly or to, you know, do, do something unusual and so on. So I believe it is possible to be aware, awake and aware, whilst the body sleeps. So one of the things that's really good about the book is you've got several exercises that people can do that are really effective. And there's one, a sophrology exercise, which is called programming a good night's rest. Perhaps you could introduce us to that concept. Yes, absolutely. What I've done is I've, you know, I mentioned set, setting, and then medicine is, is how you would use it in psychedelic therapy. And you, you get the setting right, you get the set right, and then you choose the medicine and the, and the quantity that you take. And I've taken that concept of medicine as, as methods for going to sleep. And one of the medicines you can take is sleeping pills, of course, and that we can talk about that later, perhaps. And then I, I mentioned another 13 ways that you can go to sleep naturally. And one of them is this sophrology exercise that you'd mentioned. And it's the out of the 13, it's the only one you don't do lying in bed trying to go to sleep. You do it during the day, and it uses the power of neuroplasticity to create new neural pathways. By essentially rehearsing a good night's sleep, what you do is you there's a relaxation routine of of breathing in, closing your eyes, tensing all your muscles, releasing them and relaxing them. And you go through that three times, and I have an audio recording that people can use or you can learn how to do it yourself. And you follow this sequence, and what it does is it helps you drop from a sort of state of beta brainwave, awake-aware state to a relaxed alpha state. And then you simply imagine what you'd be doing in the evening, getting ready for bed, brushing your teeth, going to bed, and then having a really good night's sleep. You just imagine that. Some people do that by imagining themselves as if they're sort of watching a kind of movie, or you can sort of inhabit yourself, as it were, inhabit the visualization and do it. See yourself waking up fresh and bright in the morning, and then you come out of the exercise. It just takes about 12 minutes. And it's extraordinary. And you would, it sounds so simple. You wouldn't think it would be effective. But I have had clients who have just done that a few times. And it's just done the trick and helped them. Because what happens is when you then actually go to bed that evening, in a sense, you've rehearsed this. You've done this already in your, in your imagination. And your nervous system can't differentiate between fantasy and reality which is why if I ask you to imagine sucking a, a fresh lemon now, you might start to feel yourself salivating because that's how powerful the imagination is. So we make use of the power of the imagination to create these new neural pathways. So it becomes habitual and you just act out essentially what you visualized. And I assume you need to do this more than just once. You're doing it for several yeah, days in yeah, a row. I mean, what I suggest is that people do that every day, say, for a fortnight or something like that, a week or so. I mean, not long. You know, The thing about insomnia as well, which is rather interesting, is that some people, there's just one thing, one thing that, you know, they'll read the book and they'll, they'll I had a friend who read it, and I've got a piece about eye masks. If you get eye masks that have some sort of weight in them, so you can feel the weight on your eyelids. It stimulates the oculocardiac reflex, which stimulates the vagus nerve. So it's very soothing to have this very light pressure actually on the eyeballs. And he rang me up and he said, you know, there's that one tip in your book 
that's all I needed. And it's just, that's what I use in the evening now. So some people, it's just one tip, like using that exercise that I just described. For other people, it's a, it's a, it's a more synergistic process of doing a number of different things that all work together to create a, you know, a positive effect. What about changing your diet? Can that help? Yes. As we get older, for instance, it seems important that we eat earlier and that the, it takes us longer to digest and having lighter meals in the evening. And one of, one of the things to do is to experiment with pushing back your meal time. So in the end, you've got at least three hours before you go to sleep, if not four, to, so that your digestion isn't keeping you awake. And what you eat can be significant as well. Some people find spicy foods irritate them and, and, and keep them awake and so on. There's, there's a, so there's a section on things for the body, supplements. The whole issue of supplements is interesting too in terms of what you can take and what's helpful and what isn't. One of the very common mistakes people make is they take melatonin because they've heard that it can help you sleep. But it seems that most melatonin supplements that are sold give you about 10 times too much melatonin. Melatonin is like a, it's not a soporific. It's a starting pistol for a cascade of changes, neurotransmitters and hormones that change in the body and that, that, that kick off the process of going to sleep. If you take too much melatonin, it's the equivalent of somebody firing the starting pistol over and over again. And so people often experience that with melatonin, they, it does help them sleep, but they bump around in light sleep and they get a sort of interfered night, uh, uh, an unsatisfactory night's sleep. And, and the trick there is to, is to take a very small dose, is to microdose melatonin. What do you think of naps? Naps, I think naps are wonderful. There are, there are, there are some people, naps just don't work for them. The trick is to have naps under about 25 minutes half an hour at the most, because what you don't want to do with a nap is you don't want to drop from light sleep into deep sleep. So you light sleep for about 25 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes, obviously huge individual variation. So these are rough figures, but 20 to 30 minutes, and then you drop into deep sleep. So if you fall asleep for say 40 minutes, 45 minutes, you're liable to wake up feeling groggy and possibly worse than you did before having the nap. And in fact, short nap, eight-minute naps, and eight minutes seems absurd because it's so short, but eight-minute naps can be extremely effective, and that really ensures that you don't drop into deep sleep. And most people benefit from naps. And the only thing to be aware of if you do suffer from insomnia is napping too much during the day. I mean, if, you're, if you find yourself doing three naps in the day and then surprise, surprise, you can't get to sleep at night, well, that may be why. So you may need to not deliberately not nap to build up what's called sleep pressure. I mean, I found when I moved to Germany and I started learning German, I would come home from my German lesson and I had to go straight to bed for mm. 10 minutes or something like that just for my, my poor brain to recover. It mm. was just, it was working so incredibly hard. Well, that's the thing is actually that's what students need to do is because there's this process of memory consolidation that happens. So in fact, napping, lots of little naps like that when you're, when you're learning. So if you're a student, for example, or you're mastering any kind of topic or learning something, do lots of little naps, you know, nap because that's the trick. And they've done research on this. You know, they've, they've got people to learn stuff and then they've kept them awake and then tested them and then they've given the other bunch of people a nap and then tested them. And the napping helps to lay down the memory. Can you catch up on lost sleep? Only slightly is the answer. You can, you can, but it's not, it's not a good way to, con to conduct yourself, if, if I can put it that way, because there's this thing called the sleep debt, which you can accumulate, and then you can try to, to gain it back, build, pay off the debt by sleeping. But your, the main thing, I think, is that the body likes routine. And when we were young, you know, we used to do that thing of, you know, you'd stay up till really late on a Friday night, say, and go to bed at five in the morning or something like that. And they say, oh, well, I'll have a lion on Sunday, you know. But as you get older, that gets harder to do. And the body likes routine. And ideally, it wants, the body wants to go to bed at the same time every night 
wake up the same time every morning. And when you get your routine, I don't know if you've experienced this, but when you get your routine, you'll find that you always wake up at the same time every morning. You wake up, I wake up at 10 to 7, not at 7 a.m., but at 10 to 7 every morning. And that's just my natural waking up. That's when I'm hitting a peak because your nervous system runs in these in these 90-minute cycles, roughly 90 minutes, again, because people vary between 80 and 120 minutes. But there's roughly a 90-minute cycle, the average of 90 minutes. And that we're familiar with in sleep. A lot of people know about the sleep cycle. Light sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep, 90 minutes has gone by. And then you have another 90-minute cycle. You get light sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep. So you go through that. What a lot of people don't know is that 90-minute cycle carries on all through the day as well. It's part of your circadian rhythm. And you can spot it. You know those times during the day when you feel a bit sleepy? I mean, you know, you, 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 know, you have your breakfast and you'll be on good form for, for an hour or so, and then sort of 11.30 or something, you might feel a bit, you know, not at your best. But then half an hour later, you're feeling great again and you're working. And I mean, straight after lunch, I mean, I almost from the lunch table to, to bed, I, it's just extraordinary. I, I, I really crash after yeah. I've eaten. Absolutely, absolutely. So the and you'll find that when you're crashing, if you kept if you kept a, a, a note of when you feel sleepy, and when you feel really bright and alert, you'll find it's going in this ninety minute cycle. You can do it strangely enough by keeping a yawn diary. Every time you yawn, you just you just note the time down, and you'll see that it's about every ninety minutes. But once you get it, this is like a, a absolute key to to sleeping well, because then you can calculate your best bedtime. And you're waking up time. And a really common experience, if you talk to people about their story, they'll say, oh, you know, you say, what happens in the evening? You know, when, when do you go to bed? And they'll say, well, what tends to happen is, you know, I'll watch the telly in the evening. I'll sit on there. And then I'll find myself falling asleep or getting really drowsy. And then I'll realize it's time for bed. I'll get, go upstairs and I'll get ready for bed. And I'll get into bed. And then I'm wide awake. I can't go to sleep, you know. And they have sleep onset insomnia. What they've done is they've gone down into a trough when their nervous system is the least aroused, the bottom of that 90-minute trough like that. And they've fallen asleep on the sofa. So they've said, oh, I've got to go to bed. Then they've done the going to bed routine, and that's taken them 20 minutes, 30 minutes. So their nervous system is starting to be aroused again. And then by the time they lie in bed, they're at the top of the thing, so they're feeling wide awake. Would it be, it's, it's better in that case just to wait 45 minutes and then start going to bed. Or recalibrate so that you're heading to bed at that time when you're falling asleep on the sofa? Well, no, before you see, no, that the, the trick is, is you work out, you say, oh, that's, that's funny. You know, every night at 10 p.m. when I put on the news, I actually feel really sleepy. I want to go to bed. So then you say, okay, how long is your getting into bed routine? And that varies amazingly. I mean, some people will say, well, I can be in bed in 10 minutes. I mean, I just, I just march upstairs and brush my teeth and get, get into bed. One client of mine, she spent an hour getting ready, you know, turning up, doing the washing up, turning out the lights, putting the cat out, putting the dog in and going upstairs to bed. So you work out what is your average time it takes and then work backwards. So if you're if you're starting to feel really tired at 10 and it in your average routine is half an hour, you, you set an alarm clock for 930 to start going to bed. And of course, the reason people don't do this is because you're feeling wide awake at that time. You're at the top of your cycle. See, then 9.30, I'm not sleepy. I'm not going to bed yet. But you say, oh, well, hang on. You know, in half an hour, you will be. You'll be hitting the, you know, the trough. Well, we're going to be looking at somebody's sleep patterns. In just a moment, I've got a letter that somebody's written in to me. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Guess how long I've been helping couples have more fulfilling relationships? The answer shocked me. 39 years. Over this time, I've developed all sorts of interventions to help couples communicate better and make meaningful changes to protect and nurture their love. Some ideas I've used for a while and dropped. 
But at the core, there are a handful of must-haves that I use with all the couples I see face-to-face. Sadly, I can't work with everyone who wants my help, but I can share my best relationship tools. I've put them in a new course with worksheets and links to my most helpful podcasts. There are four hours of instructions to do at your pace together, with your partner or on your own. And it normally retails at £150. But to launch, I've dropped them to a special introductory price of £99.50. If you'd like to find out more, go to andrewgmarshall.com forward slash tools and get started on improving your relationship. So if you'd like to participate in the programme, you can go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. You'll find there details of how to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and how to write a letter in to us. And this is what one person has done for us. From the moment I was born, my sleep has been a problem. My mom, an early to bed, early to rise kind of person, would take turns with my grandfather to take care of me. She was the day person, my grandpa was my night person. As I refused to fall asleep during the night, or as they said, I confuse my day with my night. Throughout the years, my mum tried her best to cope with this daughter that just would not learn to go to sleep early. Children in Italy, which is where I was born and raised, were supposed to go to bed before 9pm. Invariably, I would try everything in my book to stay up and spend more time with my mum and dad after dinner my favourite time of the day. She would try everything in her book to put me to bed. If she succeeded, then I would lay there tossing and turning and thinking that the monsters were about to get me. This time for sure. And that my dad was watching something absolutely impossible to miss on TV. Maybe the news or other stuff that I normally would not be interested in, but because I was in my bed, it was absolutely fascinating. If she did not succeed, it was because I would find ways to escape my bed and find a spot in the dark on the stairs from where I could see the TV, or I could find a way to sneak a little tiny headlamp under the covers so I could read my precious books unseen. My books, I was so taken with Dumas' adventures, if D'Artagnan was about to save the Queen by saving the diamonds in her necklace, how could I possibly put the book down until you knew if the musketeer would succeed in his missions? Of course, by that time, it was 5am and school was in three hours, so I'd crash asleep only to be woken up by two of the most horrifying things that could ever happen in my life. The voice of my upset and frantic mother that was trying to get me out of bed to no avail, and number one, the terror of my life, the alarm clock going off. If I'm happy, I can go to sleep late and wake up late, but late that is normal. If I'm depressed, then I go to sleep late and wake up who knows when. If left alone, I can sleep 24 hours or more, depending on the state of my mind. Only a few times in my life have I woken up naturally before the alarm goes off. At 56, I can still use 10 hours plus per night, preferably between 1 and 11 a.m. The problem is the world works in a different time zone. Yes, well, obviously it's always hard just working from one piece of paper, a letter like this. So forgive me if I if I don't get this right. But I think the clue for me is right at the beginning, the person who's written in says that her grandpa and her mum were looking after her and that she wanted to stay up with her dad. She does her dad is around because he's watching the TV in the evening. And it was her favorite time of night. And this is often a reason why children won't go to bed, is because actually The father comes home from work, often with a small child. A father will come home from work, say, at seven in the evening, which is just about when a kid is being put to bed, seven, eight in the evening. He comes back and may be there for bath time or to read a bedtime story. Now, the kid hasn't seen dad all day because he left. He went off to work and the kid went to school. And so there was maybe very little contact, if any. And then they have their father who's reading them a bedtime story. Dad wants the kid to go to sleep because he's tired, he's had a full day, and he wants to relax in front of the telly. So he wants the kid to go off to sleep. But the kid wants time with their father. And so they they play around and they mess around in order to stay up, to have quality time with the 
the parent that they haven't seen much of. So I think that may well have been what was going on there. And, you know, watching from the stairs, the television, dad watching the news and other stuff I wouldn't be interested in, you know, possibly, ad, you know, adult fare, as it were, that, that you wouldn't want kids to watch, maybe, you know, detective stories and so on. So that's that's I think that's one thing that's going on that possibly that the setup there wasn't contributing to to helping her go to sleep. And the second one here is if I'm depressed then I go to sleep late and wake up who knows when. Now this if left alone I can sleep for 24 hours or more depending on my state of mind. And you know we talked earlier about the relationship between sleep and depression. There is this really interesting relationship because about 40% of people who suffer from depression have hypersomnia, which is, means they sleep a lot. They sleep a great deal. And basically, with depression, you can either experience hypersomnia or insomnia, where you don't sleep well at all. And there's this bi-directional relationship, so we don't quite know what's going on. But the interesting thing about people who suffer from depression is that they have they tend to have longer REM sleep that's rapid eye movement sleep which is dream sleep and because they're getting more dream sleep that reduces the amount of deep sleep they're getting deep sleep is the restorative sleep that regenerates cells and refreshes you and so on and so there is a, one theory is that what's happening is that people who suffer from depression get caught in a vicious cycle whereby because they tend to ruminate and worry and catastrophize they create conflict emotional conflict within themselves as well as any as and as well as having any emotional conflict that may exist outside of themselves too so they need more rem sleep to resolve the conflicts because that's what rem sleep does it helps you resolve emotional conflict and so because they need more REM sleep, getting less deep sleep, because they're getting less deep sleep, they wake up feeling tired and exhausted. And this turns into a vicious cycle, which means they're sleeping more and more, but never quite getting enough of the kind of sleep that they need. And what's supportive of that hypothesis is the fact that people who take SSRIs, you know, which are antidepressants, one of its effects is to induce insomnia in people, is to reduce the amount of REM sleep they get, which for people who suffer from insomnia just makes their insomnia worse. So if you, if you have insomnia, if you're depressed, you take SSRIs and you already suffer from insomnia, it might aggravate your insomnia. If, however, you don't have insomnia, the SSRIs may be reducing the amount of REM sleep you get, thereby giving you enough deep sleep thereby making you feel better. So there's there's something going on there. So back to this letter, the fact that she can sleep for a very long time suggests this hypersomnia effect. And when we get towards the end of the letter where she's saying, at age 56, I can use 10 plus hours per night, preferably between 1 and 11 hours. That's really interesting. And maybe we can just home in on that final sentence. And what I'd say there is, 10 plus hours per night, that's fine. There's the sort of the myth of the eight-hour sleep. You have to have eight hours. So really anything sort of six to 12 hours seems to be the sort of the, the range. And it's a, a huge individual variation. And there's, there's, there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that under five hours a night is really not good for you. But over that, there's this tremendous range. So 10 plus you know, is fine, and one could say that you know, perfectly not nothing to worry about. But what if you are like this woman? She has to go to work, and mm. so eleven o'clock is you know not the time to wake up because you know I don't know what time she's expected at work. But the impression I get is it's sort of office hours, sort of kind. Yeah, of, yeah. The world works in a different time zone. Exactly. This is this is where you have to make some adaptation because. If you are an owl, you know, so you, if, if she was to do a chronotype test and there are chronotype quizzes you can do online, which are quite good, she would probably find that she's an owl, you know, and, and that she does best going to, to sleep at, at late and waking up late. 
But if she has to go to sleep early, uh, has to wake up early, then she has a problem. And she essentially either has to change her job or just go to sleep earlier and kind of deal with it. What about morning rituals? Actually, we've talked about getting into sleep, coming Mm. out the other side. That strikes me as being equally important. So give us some tips about when we're coming back out of sleep and into the day. Yes, yes, exactly. But yeah, you're, you're, you're quite right. And I sort of have an online program that I do to help people sleep called the Sleep Clinic. And, and we devote a, a section, and there's a section in the, in, the, in the book about this as well, actually. And if you pay attention to the process of waking up, it's, it's, it's like so many things that we do, we tend not to think about it and just sort of do it. But that whole process of waking up is extraordinary. And in fact, you know, the whole, the phrase waking up is now used in a sort of consciousness and sort of spiritual sort of sense, isn't it, about, you know, waking up to higher levels of awareness and so on. So the advice really is to treasure those moments of waking up because they can be moments as well as you go through that liminal state between being asleep and waking up. That's when you can bring, you know, interesting ideas, memories of dreams, positive feelings. You can sort of bring that into your waking life. And then I suggest a couple of things. There's a sophrology exercise, there's a silver method exercise that I suggest that you can try. And there's a Sanford Bennett routine. Sanford Bennett is a rather interesting character who achieved fame when he was in towards his late 50s. He started to feel himself getting old. And he decided, you know, he did some gym classes. He went to classes and and he just hated, you know, making the, the effort and, and having the discipline to do it. He He figured since exercising is essentially stretching and tensing and releasing muscles, and moving your body in particular way. Why can't I just do that in bed? And he developed the Sanford Bennett routine. And his book is still in print after sort of 60 years or 100 years, I think, actually. And you basically do exercises in bed. So the sophrology routines are, are and the silver routines that I suggest are consciousness exercises to sort of stimulate the nervous system, if you like. And the Sanford Bennett routines are to stimulate the body. So another idea might be looking at uh, doing something in the morning that helps you get from that sort of crashed state out of the alarm clock into something that is a little bit more peaceful. Another little tip is actually mouth tapes. I don't know if you've heard of mouth taping. This was originally developed for snoring to help people. One in five households in America, the partners where there's a, a couple the partners sleep in separate rooms because of the problem of snoring. So it's a big problem. And essentially, snoring can either be an issue with the nose, the mouth, or the uh, the larynx further down, and you can the various approaches to them and so on. And I go into that in, in detail in the book. But one of the things, if it's a question of the mouth hanging open during the night, one of the things you can do is you can tape the mouth up. It seems an extraordinary idea. But in my quest for to research for this book, I tried some mouth tapes. And my wife reported that the noise of snoring was reduced considerably. But what I found was that I felt better if I slept like that. And as as I was doing this, it was a couple of years back, people started to discover that nose breathing was more healthy than mouth breathing. And so now I use mouth tapes every night because what what happens is your mouth tends to fall open when you're asleep, which means your mouth becomes very dry. And the oxygenation levels and what the, the, the CO2 levels change, nose breathing is far healthier for you. So you actually feel clearer. I used to feel pretty groggy when I woke up in the mornings. But since I've been mouth taping, I don't feel groggy when I wake up. And in fact, if you just Google mouth taping, you'll find all sorts of articles where it's, it's become a health fad now. And you can buy all sorts of different mouth tapes. You can buy tapes that allow you to open your mouth and take a sip of water and speak. You can have ones that seal your mouth completely. You can have sort of X-shaped ones that go across your mouth. How does it work with a beard? Well, you have to I, – I, it works fine. The little X-tape ones fall off, I find. But the ones I use, the ones I like, are ones that have an opening. So I can take a sip of water. I can 
mumble a few words to my wife before I go to sleep. Good night, I love you, darling. Yes, I love you. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so I play around with that. I have fun with that. And and they and they they the kind of whatever glue they're using, I say it's fine. They, you know, it stays on all night. Well, I have a vision of you with a mouth tape on tonight. Um, I hope you have a, a good night's sleep. Before we finish this section of the programme, I've already asked you what makes your life meaningful. I was just wondering if there's anything you've done recently that has been meaningful. Well, last weekend I went on a on a great walk. I've, I've just been writing a book on walks in the Sussex landscape. I live in Lewis, mm. the Sussex Downs, and I was asked to write a book called the, the Long Man and Friends. And I invited a friend to write it with me we, who likes walking too. And he and I researched nine walks that are in the book. And I researched one of the walks last weekend with about 10 friends. And we, we just spent the day walking on the downs and I was making notes and following the route and so on. And that, that was just lovely. That felt really meaningful. It sounds a lovely combination, walking and friendship together, two, mm. two beautiful things. Yeah. So we're going to continue this conversation. We're going to look at, talk about some of the harmful myths about sleep. And if you want to hear this, you'll have to subscribe to the bonus material. You can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. Or if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material this way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.